Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Dude, we did it. We have reached the ultimate milestone and can now end the podcast here knowing that we have made it and there are no further milestones to reach for us. Oh yeah, when you shared the news with me, I was absolutely blown away. Number one documentary podcast in Estonia, baby. <laughs> in the country of Estonia, we are the number one podcast under the documentary category. <laughs> That's right. And it's hilarious because I actually looked up our stats in Estonia and we only have 53 downloads there. So apparently I don't really like documentary podcasts in Estonia. But either way, I was tickled by that fact. I think we're like number four in Slovakia, right? Yeah, man. And number seven in Uruguay. So this is it for us. I don't think it gets much better. Anyways... So for today's topic, we're going to discuss one of the few things necessary for all life to survive. You know, oxygen, food, water, shelter, and sleep are kind of the five main ones that humans need to get by. And when I think of the future and the process of collapse, the ones that scare me the most are food and water, followed by shelter. You know, I, I don't think in our lifetimes there's ever going to be a lack of oxygen, and I'm not afraid of dying from a lack of sleep. But food which we can only survive a few weeks without, requires plentiful water, which we can only survive a few days without. So to me, the prospect of losing adequate access to water is what keeps me up at night. 
And I think that when most people consider the danger of running out of water, they're thinking about it from the standpoint of what comes from your tap, what you drink, right? Or even what we use in the shower or what we use to do our laundry, because that's the water that we see. In reality, though, municipal water only makes up 11% of all freshwater use. The other 89% is for things like industrial purposes, energy production, irrigation, and agriculture, all of which keep our lights on, it keeps the supply chain moving, and ultimately it's what puts food on the table. So today we're going to focus on water, why it's so important, why it's in danger, and perhaps some of the potential results of having a strain on our water supply. Yeah, I think I've mentioned this as well when we talked about preparation, and even when we've talked about climate change, this is also what scares me the most, especially because, from my understanding, we are running out of fresh water at least having enough to support the global population. And with all the disruptions, the weather patterns, it seems like we're going to see lots of drought. We're going to see lots of groundwater affected by salt water from rising sea levels. So I'm really excited to learn from you on this. Yeah, it really seems like we're being attacked on all sides when it comes to fresh water. It's not just one thing. It's not that we're just depleting it, but there's actually a lot of different angles that it's coming from. So we'll touch on all of those things. In a past episode, we talked about how it takes a ton of water to produce a hamburger. That was in the modern agriculture episode. So in the end, it takes an average 1,800 gallons of water to produce a single pound of beef. So when you think about like your use of water, brushing your teeth and trying to turn the faucet off while you're brushing so you don't waste that bit of water and taking a five-minute shower instead of your eight-minute shower, but then you realize that you go out and buy a a pound of beef and it's 1,800 gallons of water to produce that. You know, if you drank a gallon of water a day, which is more than you need, you could live nearly five years on the same amount of water it takes to produce that pound of beef. But similar numbers are true of a lot of the foods that we eat. It's not just beef. So for example, a pound of rice requires 450 gallons of water. You need 52 gallons of water for a single egg. That one blows me away. A cup of coffee takes 34 gallons of water. So when you consider the amount that it takes to produce the food that we consume, it's easy to see why running out of water could cause a serious crisis and quickly. You know, not only does it take a ton of water to make the food, but the amount of water required for a single pound of anything is growing. So, you know, over the last generation, we've increased the amount of food that we can grow by two times for our growing population, but it's taken three times the amount of water to produce it. So as our population continues to grow, the amount of water we have to use to produce enough food to feed the people doesn't grow proportionately. It's taking more and more water to produce the same amount of food. Now you might think, well, there is an abundance of water, right? You hear people talking about like three quarters of the earth is covered in it. And obviously we know that not all that water can be used, but I think the actual amount of our water that is fresh water that is accessible to us is pretty incredible when you think about it. So I read it put this way, which is pretty interesting. If the earth were a globe, 28 inches in diameter. So I think that's probably something similar to like those big exercise balls that people sit on and do yoga on and stuff. If Earth were that size, all of the water on the planet would fill less than one cup. Only 0.03% of one cup is in rivers and freshwater lakes. What that means is slightly more than one single drop of water would fill all of the rivers and lakes in the world. No way. Yeah, it's super weird to think about, but that puts into perspective really how little of the water that we have is fresh water. And I mean, it makes sense because you look at the earth and it looks like it's just covered in water, right? And it is, it's 75% covered in water, but relatively to the size of the earth, the oceans aren't that deep. And so you think of a cup of water, if you poured it over the top of 
you know, an exercise ball, the proportions kind of make sense. So I don't know if you plan to talk about this at all. And I know I'm really naive here. But when it comes to technologies that can convert salt water into fresh water, like I know they exist. Is the issue there that it takes so much energy to do that? Yeah, we will talk about this a little bit later, but it's it's an energy issue and it's also a cost issue. You know, you think about something like oil and what oil sells for, water simply can't sell for those same high prices. And so if you have to put water through an extremely expensive and complicated process to make it usable, it's uneconomical. And the ones who end up paying for it is the state because the people can't, right? Not only are people not willing to pay those prices, but they can't pay those prices even if they were willing. And as we know with catabolic collapse, the more expensive something is to maintain and produce, the less and less sustainable it becomes. So there are examples of places that use those desalinization plants, but I think they're becoming increasingly rare. And we're going to actually talk about one that was abandoned because of how uneconomical it was. So when it comes to like hard numbers about how much fresh water is actually accessible to humans for consumption, the number is about 7 billion acre feet of water. That's a uselessly high number and kind of a weird way to think about it because nobody can really picture what an acre foot really means. But what it breaks down to is about 370,000 gallons of water per year per human is what's accessible to us. And that seems like a lot. Like I would think 370,000 gallons, there's no way I use that much. But the truth is, Westerners use between 400 and 500,000 gallons of water per year. And by the way, these figures are all coming from a book called When the Rivers Run Dry by Fred Pierce, which was written in 2010. So some of these might be a little outdated by now. But all that water is being consumed by us, not obviously by drinking or bathing or laundry, but by all the food that we consume, by the energy that we consume and the water required for it, by our clothing and all of these things that require water for its production. So the rest of the world uses much less, but it does go to show that as the undeveloped world advances itself technologically, it's going to quickly put us on a pace to run out of enough water to get by. At this point, over 2 billion people, which is 25% of the planet, already only have access to contaminated drinking water, no access to clean drinking water, which is causing the death of over 3 million people per year. So these are the first two major issues then that we're going to run into with water is that the population is growing and so too is the demand for water. And number two, that the underdeveloped parts of the world are increasing their water demand per capita as they advance. Yeah, at a really basic kind of fundamental level, it makes me think of the underlying principle behind collapse and why it's inevitable, right? We are on a finite planet, so we can't expect to grow infinitely. Yep, exactly. You know, it's basically straight out of limits to growth, like we've talked about. Now, if the problem stopped there, you know, perhaps we could find a way to make it work, but they don't. There's lots more. So one of the biggest issues with water is that we can't control very well where the available water is located. So for example, the Amazon River contains 15% of all fresh river water available, and yet it only feeds 0.4% of the global population. The rest is just wasted. Canada has 90% of its water where only 10% of the people are and 90% of the people where only 10% of the water is. And while there are huge projects that have been done to move water to where it's needed, you know, it often turns out that those types of projects are either uneconomical or are eventually abandoned. And if they're not abandoned, you know, it still ends up being this huge financial expenditure. One example of that is um, Muammar Gaddafi of Libya. We know him for being executed by rebels during the Arab Spring in 2011, but during his reign... He spent 27 billion U.S. dollars to create the largest network of underground pipes in the world. 
He called it the Great Man-Made River. It was like his greatest accomplishment. There's more than 2,000 miles of pipes that deliver water to cities like Tripoli, which is the capital, and Benghazi. He always bragged that it was the eighth wonder of the world, but what he wouldn't brag about was the fact that of the five proposed phases of the project, only two ended up being completed, and they ended up delivering a relatively small portion of the total water needed in the area, and a much less amount than he had expected. Most of the water for that area still comes from other sources. Even further, since those wars in 2011, one-fifth of the wells that were created have been abandoned, and there have been incidents with pipes bursting, causing a bunch of issues, flooding, that, that type of thing. And so this is all to say that no matter how much money you throw at it, whether you can afford to or not, probably isn't going to be economical to get the water from where it flows to where the people are in a way that really allows it to make any sense. And on the flip side, right, you mentioned you can't just pick up the Amazon River and put it where more people are. But you also can't just pick up all the people and put them where the water is, right? We, we've talked in the past about mass migrations and all the issues caused by that. So it makes sense to me that matching supply to demand based on your region is an extremely difficult thing to do. Yeah, and especially when you consider something like the Amazon, you'd be picking up all the people, you know, from where they currently are and moving them, which is hard enough. But you're also moving them to a place that is inhospitable rainforest. You're destroying the ecology of the area, the environment. The water isn't just for humans, right? Our whole ecosystem relies on balance and that water being able to, to keep those ecosystems in balance. So if you were to put all the people right where the water is, it would cause a whole other set of issues as well. So this all leads to a third major issue of our water consumption, and that's that many people today are relying on their sources of water coming from underground aquifers. So Gaddafi's Great Man-Made River pulled water from an aquifer that was not refilled by rain at any capacity. And just like oil or any other non-renewable resource, once that water's gone, like, it's gone. In Gaddafi's instance, he claimed the water would last a thousand years. But independent studies have shown that it may only last between 60 and 100. And that was at consumption rates from more than a decade ago. So right now, in India, for example, more than 21 million farmers use water tapped from aquifers instead of rivers to feed people. And that's due to a few reasons. One, maybe there's just not enough water. But I think more than that, it's the fact that the infrastructure has not been created for irrigation and canals to get the water to the people. And again, it's just another idea of cost and the difficulty of not only creating infrastructure, but maintaining it. A lot of it comes from government neglect or government mismanagement of funds and that sort of thing. But because of that, like I said, 21 million farmers are relying on this water that is temporary. You know, water's become such a precious resource in some areas that farmers quit farming in order to become water miners, where they'll just pump water out of the ground and sell it to these massive trucks that come and pick it up and then go sell it to the farmers who need it. And they're getting rich doing it, but they know that it's not going to last that much longer. In the book I mentioned earlier by David Pierce, he actually talks to some water miners in India who say they're having to dig so deep now, they believe they're about at the bottom of the aquifers, but that they have to keep doing it in order to make a living and to keep the system going. If they stop pumping the water, not only are they going to go under, but all the farmers that they supply are going to go under as well. Everyone knows that it's going to run out eventually and probably soon, but they just can't stop. They also know that if they stop, everyone else is going to keep doing it. And so therefore, it doesn't really do any good. And that's what's known as the tragedy of the commons. Basically, everyone doing what's in their self-interest, but that making everyone's lives short-lived. 
But anyway, that's happening all over the world. Pakistan and China, there are estimates at around 200 million in India. And it's just crazy because these countries have been pumping water for roughly 30 years since the technology to drill those types of wells has been available. But it's thought that there could be as few as 10 years left in a lot of those aquifers. And obviously, they're not all going to run out at once. But little by little, villages, towns, and even cities are going to be uprooted as the water runs dry and people are going to have to be displaced. Throughout all of our conversations so far, as you've been teaching me about collapse, and I've been doing some of my own research now and starting to learn bits and pieces, one of the biggest tragedies to me is that with so many things, it's not that we don't have enough, right? There is an abundance of everything that we need. It's just that we can't figure out how to distribute things. We talk about wealth disparity, right? It's not that there's not enough wealth to go around. It's that it all collects at the top. We talk about water in this case, and there's enough to go around, but some areas are flooding while others are in drought. Some have way more than they need while others don't have enough. It seems like that's the case with a lot of our other natural resources that we talked about. And in so many cases, it's like what you said, it's it's a lack of making the right decisions on the part of governments and corporations and even communities. Really, to me, it's just a reminder that we are so nearsighted. We're kind of continuously shooting ourselves in the foot. Yeah, kind of like what we talked about last week, right? Like capitalism says that there's money to be made by producing Billy Bass singing fish. And yet there's not money to be made in saving people from starving to death or dying of thirst. And it sucks. You know, I'm not a socialist and I'm not saying that everybody should own everything together and everything should be equal. I don't think there's anything wrong with a little wealth disparity, but the curve should not be anywhere near what we're seeing. And if we were to use our resources smarter, if less money was going into the Billy Basses and more money was going into fixing these sort of serious issues, we would all be much better off. Yeah, and I think it's worth mentioning, right? It's really easy to point the finger at government. And a lot of cases that's justified. But like you mentioned before, those of us in developed nations are using way more water than we need while others are going without. So in a way, we're all to blame for the situation that we're in, right? In the end, we're the ones that enable our governments to be the way that they are, right? And while maybe I don't have the power to deliver water to another country who needs it, like we do all enable our economic systems, our governmental systems, and in the end, we elect who's in charge. So anyway, back to the aquifers, you know, as we mentioned earlier, just like with oil, the cost to pump the water out of the ground increases as it becomes harder to find it as the aquifer gets more empty. But like we said, the problem with water is that the costs are just unjustifiable. It's not because water is unimportant. That's obviously not true, but it's that poor people cannot pay for it. And so the costs for that have to be bared by the government. And also the volume of water that's needed is just so much crazier. And so the costs have the potential to be so much higher. And in a state of catabolic collapse, it becomes increasingly harder to keep up with that infrastructure, let alone produce new infrastructure in the future. So on top of these issues, freshwater runs into a ton of other problems. So there's things like you mentioned soil salinization from improper irrigation and from rising sea levels to evaporation of water off of reservoirs and dams, which actually is a considerable amount of water loss is just from it simply evaporating. And when water evaporates, it does come back down. But again, you're not able to predict where. And oftentimes that water ends up you know, falling as rain, either in somewhere where it can't be used over the ocean or in an uninhabited area. 
There are other things like chemical poisoning, failing infrastructure of existing dams, and that's not even considering the environmental and human impacts of dam building as well. And each of these things deserve their own episode. And so we're not going to go into those for now, but I do think we should come back and touch on them later. And if all those problems weren't enough, we haven't even touched on the looming climate change threat to water as well. We've mentioned in the past that where there's currently water, there'll be drought. And where there's currently not enough water now, there may be too much water. Increased heat of the oceans and atmospheric temperature will increase the amount of water vapor, which will cause unprecedented floods in some areas that will carry away soil, you know, destroy infrastructure, kill people. And then other areas that might be currently viable due to water accessibility will experience drought that will make them uninhabitable. So when it comes to freshwater, there's already barely enough or not enough when you consider the annual deaths due to people not having access to clean water. And we're growing, so we'll need more. And our agricultural processes are requiring more for the same amount of food, but it's becoming destroyed through all these things, salinization, poisoning, evaporation. And we're already having to use non-renewable water from underground aquifers. And on top of all that, climate change is rapidly ruining our ability to know where the water is going to be and when. And catabolic collapse is going to make it impossible to spend the money on necessary water infrastructure to keep people's taps running and agricultural processes moving in order to keep people fed. Yeah, all those problems that you just mentioned, to me, sound like ingredients in a recipe for disaster. And you see all the wars that have been fought over oil, but I just think, how intense will the conflict be if communities or states or provinces or even nations are running out of water, something that is so necessary for survival. So I actually did a little bit of research looking into this because I knew we were going to be talking about some of these issues around water. And I found something really interesting. It's from a group called the Pacific Institute. And from what I can gather, they've had this project going since like the 1980s to document any kind of conflict in which water is a key factor. They call this the water and conflict chronology. And they've got some conflicts listed. You know, it's it's this big, long list of all these conflicts. Some of them go clear back thousands of years, but so many of them are in very recent history. And I'm surprised. I feel like I don't hear about these very much, but that's probably because most of the water conflicts happening right now are taking place on the other side of the globe. But for anyone who's interested, if you go to www.worldwater.org slash conflict slash list, which we'll link to in the description. Yeah, if you go check out that list, there are 926 conflicts listed. And it's really interesting the way they categorize these. I hadn't really thought about it this way, but some of the conflicts that they list, they say that water was the trigger, right? That was the reason for the conflict or one of the primary reasons. In some, they mention water as the weapon, right? Where water resources or even water systems are used as a weapon in a violent conflict. And then some of the conflicts that they list, they're saying water is the casualty. There's plenty of examples of conflict taking place, bombs go off that destroy the infrastructure of a water system that thousands of people depend upon. So water conflicts are taking place all the time. Yeah, this is where it gets really pretty scary. I mean, that's crazy to me. 926 incidents of conflict over water. And that number is surely just going to grow as things get harder. You know, water flows long distances and the people nearest the original source are the ones that get first dibs. But what happens when a nation who controls the source of the water out of necessity for its own survival cuts it off to the nations downstream? There's a huge potential for conflict. And like you said, there's already tons of examples of past conflict. There's tons of examples of current conflicts happening right now. 
and a lot of potential for future escalating conflicts in nations as well, and some even right here at home in the U.S. Right now, at least 20 nations are getting at least half of their water from their neighbors. So that's pretty intense to think about. That's a lot of countries who fully rely on other countries for their most basic needs of survival. If the host nation starts running low on water, of course, to preserve their own people, they're going to cut off the water source. And like you said, Kellen, a lot of times the need for water isn't immediately recognized as the reason for the conflict. You put two nations together who already have a history of ethnic conflict, religious differences, that sort of thing, and then you add in the stressor of this element that is required for life and that there's not enough of, and yeah, it's just asking for disaster. Yeah, one example of what you're saying. In 2019, India unexpectedly released some water from a dam. It caused some moderate flooding downstream in Pakistan, and Pakistan claimed that that unexpected release of water was an act of war. Now, if Pakistan and India erupted into a major war, I don't know that anyone would say, well, it was because of that issue with water. In any sort of conflict, usually there's a lot of baggage, a lot of history, and about 10,000 reasons that are all contributing to the conflict taking place. You mentioned the example of, of areas where one nation is upstream from another. Right, And there might be international waters, but often there's not any sort of international policy or guidelines on how that resource should be shared. And in the case of India and Pakistan, I mean, it's absolutely terrifying. These are two relatively new nuclear-enabled countries, right? Not to say that they'd ever use it, but just the fact that one country relies on the other, it comes with all this extra baggage, and now we're including this fact of water dependability, and that gets really terrifying. Yeah, and just one other quick example that that made me think of. I know that Egypt has said that they will go to war with anyone who dams the Nile River upstream from them, which they're probably directing that at Ethiopia. But in in these situations where countries are reliant on the actions of other countries and what decisions they make with the water resources that they have, the gun is already loaded and cocked. So I agree, it's absolutely terrifying. If you haven't been paying attention to what's happening in Egypt and Ethiopia and Sudan, I think this is just a superb example of all of this because there's so much at play here. And it's something that's actively happening right now. It was only, I think, last August that Ethiopia started actually filling this reservoir, this dam that they built. It's a humongous dam that they're going to be using for hydropower that's supposed to lift, I can't remember how many millions of people out of poverty, 50% of their population doesn't have access to any electricity. And so this would be huge for Ethiopia and their people. But Egypt relies on the Blue Nile for 90% of its people to receive its water. And like you said, Egypt has laid claim on all the water from the Nile, which seems a little silly because it's coming from a different country. But like you said, there's, there's no real agreement on actually who gets access to the water and how much of it. And then you've got Sudan in this issue as well, and it, it just shows how dicey and complicated things get because Sudan, the dam actually really benefits them as well. So I'm sure secretly they want the dam to go through. There have been tons of flooding and all sorts of issues from the Nile that this dam is going to prevent, it would actually save lives, and it would economically be better for them as well. But the issue is that Sudan is in diplomatic ties 
with Egypt and is also allied with Saudi Arabia, who is an ally to Egypt. And so there's this whole complication of the military questions. You know, if they side with Ethiopia, they're breaking ties with their allies, but they don't also want to shoot down the idea of the dam because it would be so economically great for them. And above all of this, between Egypt and Ethiopia, it seems to be more of power grabbing and political motives. Experts say that there probably is enough water to allow for both the hydroelectric project in Ethiopia and for Egypt to be able to provide water for all its people. But because both sides is trying to do too much and is trying to make the power move, it's turning into this potential very serious conflict. Some other examples of conflicts that have either already begun, might be currently happening, or have the potential to happen are between Israel and Palestine. So the Gaza Strip is one of the scarcest places on earth for water. Per capita, people in Israel and Palestine have the least amount of water of anyone in the world. And Israel has kind of hoarded that water and left Palestinians without. And there have been conflicts, and, and this is another instance of, obviously, the conflict goes way beyond water, right? It goes back thousands of years for ethnic and religious reasons, but water could end up being the breaking point. Same thing between Saudi Arabia and Jordan. We already mentioned India and Pakistan. Also, India and Bangladesh, which in an earlier episode, we talked about how Bangladesh is not only suffering with not having enough drinking water, it's also having an abundance of ocean water because as the sea level rises, it's displacing people. And if they ever had to go somewhere, India is really the only place for them to go. And with already so much conflict between them, water conflict has the potential to send it over the edge. Afghanistan, Iraq. And the last one I'll mention here is actually in the United States on what has been called the most regulated river in the world, and that is the Colorado River. So I don't know that many people know this, but the Colorado River provides water to seven states, over 40 million people, and on average, the amount of water available from the Colorado River has been decreasing. Some of the biggest areas there of future conflict come from Arizona, where, I mean, obviously, Phoenix is about as desert as it gets. And I've always actually wondered how Arizona got its water. And it's from the Colorado River. They had to construct a 300-mile-long canal. This water serves both Phoenix and Tucson. And so there's been this big sort of legal battle and question around when the water level gets low enough, who gets to keep providing water for their people? And of course, Phoenix is saying, well, it should be us. We're the biggest population. We're the most in need because we don't have our own water source and, you know, Phoenix is a city of almost 5 million people. But then other states like Nevada and Colorado and Utah are saying, no, we get to keep the water because we're upstream and it's coming from us to you. You know, that sort of thing. And in recent years, it's been seeming like Phoenix is going to be the one that loses the legal battle in the end. And so it's just crazy to me to think about the fact that if there were ever a severe drought, which the West is experiencing severe drought, and it wouldn't be too surprising to see the Colorado River decrease to crisis levels, the city of Phoenix, 5 million people, could basically be left without water in a summer, you know, with 115 degree weather. But anyway, I can't pretend to know what's going to happen, who's going to win that battle, but the fact is that it's going to happen. And that's terrifying to think about. The majority of those living in the West are reliant on this one river and that we'll likely see some sort of conflicts and battle happening over the next decades in that arena. You know, if a limited amount of fresh water, along with a growing population, was the only concern, I'd still be really worried. But the fact that this is all kind of 
moving toward a dead end at the same rate that all the other things that we've talked about are. You know, it just really further convinces me that what I'm learning about from these conversations with you is one of the most important things I can be learning about at this time. Yeah, it's like more people are needing a piece of the pie, and the pie is getting smaller, and it's getting more expensive to bake, and more difficult to cut. Like, it just seems like it's all kind of coming in on itself at once, and that we're going to see that happening over the next few decades. You know, we've talked about the importance in the past of having a bit of water on hand. There was recently all this trouble in Texas with the snowstorm and how unprepared they were, and, you know, this is a great example of collapsing infrastructure and obviously Texas is going to come back from this and their infrastructure will be built back up and, and all that. But it just shows how we are not ready for climate change. And these types of events are going to continue happening. And a lot of people in Texas were left without water for you know up to a couple or a few days at a time, stranded at home, unable to go anywhere. And so having a 55-gallon barrel of water in the house to serve you for a week or two if needed, can be a huge comfort in the short term. But it's also important to know your area, where the water comes from. Don't just trust that you can turn on your tap and it's there. Know what sources of water supply your area so you can see potential impacts before they happen. Come up with a plan for alternative sources of water should the tap stop working, that sort of thing. Anyway, in the end, some places are going to get hit way worse than others. Some places may be unaffected. As mentioned, it's not all going to happen at the same time. There will be a water crisis here, a water crisis there, a mass migration here, a mass migration there. And we may find ways to make it work for the next couple of decades during the time being, but eventually we will run into issues. And it's on each of us in the end to know our own situations and what we can do to best mitigate those issues. So thanks for listening. Support us on Patreon and we'll see you next week. So as our population continues to grow, the amount of water we have to use to produce enough food to feed the people doesn't grow proportionately. Proportionally? Proportionately. I don't think proportionately is a word. Proportionally? No, homie. No, really? If you're right, you can have that last fruit snack. Oh, man. Everything's riding on this. Proportionately. <laughs> Proportionately definition in a way that corresponds in size or amount to something else. So how does that different? Did you see if proportionally is a word? They're both words. <laughs> in a way that corresponds in size or amount. <laughs> it's the exact same. <laughs> Interesting. We get to split the fruits next. All right, sounds good. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.